You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Union soldiers position themselves behind a stone wall at the top of Culp's Hill, overlooking the town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. From there, they could see in the distance a hint of gray that then became unmistakable as a set of moving bodies. Confederates were moving towards their position with every intention of reaching it. The Union soldiers kept a tight eye on the Confederates, marching towards them, did nothing, said nothing, until that moment when the Confederates came close enough and reached a point known as the Bloody Angle. Then the Billy Yanks stood up over the stone wall and extended their hands to the Johnny Reps. it's not some alt history or fantasy. This was the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, a three-day event that would honor veterans and include a complete reenactment of Pickett's Charge with soldiers of both sides, followed by a speech from the President of the United States, a quick Gettysburg address of his own about healing the wounds between North and South. The Gettysburg 50th anniversary is one of many interesting events of 1913. 100 years ago, some just interesting and some that influence American society and politics to this very day. We'll start with something so simple, but yet something you may benefit from in a very personal way. A box is waiting for you by your front door. It's one of those new DVDs or a nice used iPod that you secured from eBay. Now, you might get it via UPS, and if you do that well... There is nothing that applies here to 1913, as Motor Parcel Delivery Company, the precursor of America's brown truck freight carrier, would not exist for another six years. But if you see that familiar red, white, and blue U.S. Postal Service logo, well, that is something that officially started 100 years ago. Parcel service through the post office. The post office had always had some kind of package delivery, but it was awkward, inconsistent in rules, pricing, where they would deliver to... On January 1st, 1913, the post office started delivering door-to-door and at a uniform price that everyone could understand. And more than you might suspect, it was seen as a progressive piece of legislation. Rural residents comprised 54% of the country's population in 1913. And they complained that they were being bilked by private carriers to get the goods to their towns and homes. While the question was being debated in Congress about developing a parcel service, one of the major express companies, ill-timed perhaps, delivered a large stockholder dividend. Public indignation at the profit spurred Congress to develop parcel post service. It was a hit in 1913. In the first five days, four million parcel post packages were handled. Now there were customers delighted. New mail order businesses were created based on the system. But like any system, however... There are a few people who took advantage of the low prices. By far, the largest object ever moved through the partial post system was a bank. Not all at once, of course, but brick by brick. 
W.H. Coldharp, in charge of building the Bank of Vernal, Utah, wanted bricks that were produced in Salt Lake, 427 miles from Vernal. Instead of paying four times the cost for the bricks to be shipped by wagon freight, Colt Harp arranged for the bricks to be shipped in 50-pound packages through parcel post one ton at a time. The postmasters and the railroad were not pleased, but in the end, the entire bank was shipped. But that wasn't even the oddest parcel package to be shipped. That had to be one mailed from Grangeville to Lewiston, Idaho. This 48-and-one-half-pound package was okay for the 50-pound limit of parcel post service. The package, though, was May Pierstorf, four years old. May's parents decided to send their daughter for a visit to her grandparents, but didn't want to pay the train fare. Instead, they put the 53 cents in parcel post stamps on May's coat. The regulations, after all, didn't say you couldn't mail a person specifically. This little girl traveled the entire distance to Lewiston in the train's mail compartment and was delivered to her grandmother's house by the mail clerk on duty. This is not something Parcel Post would do today, in case you're considering a free ride. On March 4th, 1913, what we can only imagine was one of the happiest days in President William Howard Taft's life occurred. He handed the presidency over to Woodrow Wilson, the governor of New Jersey and the first Democrat to hold office in 20 years. Not only was Taft relieved to get rid of the office, but his opponent, Teddy Roosevelt, was not getting that office. And the president promised to go into the background, which he largely did. Those who were present on March 4th would have saw a smiling President Taft in his last few minutes of presidential service that day. Something else had happened that made for revolutionary change in politics. A coalition of progressive Republicans and Democrats had seized power from the conservative Republican Congress, which had ruled under Joe Cannon for a decade. They did this in early 1910. The coalition was enlarged when Democrats won the midterm of that year. But the Congress still had Taft's veto to contend with. Thus, it was not until 1913 that marked the year of a free hand for this Congress, a fairly friendly president for some progressive domestic policies, and a focus, at least for one year, on domestic policy. The change of power was nothing to be gleeful about, however, if you were among the majority of Republicans or Bull Moose progressives who voted for someone else to be president. But you know, it was still a big day. And there would be 250,000 onlookers down in Washington to see Woody Wilson sworn in. And especially if you were in a place like New York City, where a lot of Democrats live, and naturally many of them would like to see this ceremony, how would you get down to the inauguration? Well, perhaps in your automobile. Not everyone owned one, but perhaps you did. Perhaps you owned a Vulcan SGV with electric gear shift, a beaming 35-horsepower convertible that would get you to Washington in style. Or maybe a more economical Model T at or around $600. Maybe you owned a sleek Sterling New York Roadster or the Century Electric, which the ads say was a wonderful clean car. If not any of those, maybe you owned a National Button Car. The conservative choice that its ad said appeals to a woman. Maybe, though, a cycle car was more your style, like the DeCross Sidecar or the Imp, a thinner, smaller, lower-to-the-ground cab with big bike wheels, extreme in lightness, simplicity, and low initial and upkeep expense, in which, the ad said, cycle practice is embodied to a noticeable extent. 
those autos, indeed the minis of their day, and maybe you had one of those, but in any of the hundreds of thousands of vehicles America was manufacturing in 1913, how would you get to yourself in the inauguration as well? Americans were used to going no farther than a country ride near their home. Obviously, there's no GPS, and highways weren't necessarily always paved, marked, certainly not with the big colorful signs the way they are today. Well, relax. Luckily, the Automobile Club provided directions consisting of a web of towns and ferry points. Proceed down Broadway to the Staten Island Ferry, and then once in Staten Island to Tompkinsville, New Dorp, then in New Jersey, from Perth Amboy to New Brunswick, to Deans, Dayton, Cranberry, Trenton, down to Camden. Take another ferry to Philadelphia, then north on Broad Street, Spring Garden Ave, to the Lancaster Turnpike. This old toll road, the club members had informed the club, had been greatly improved. So good luck, don't get lost. After the turnpike ride, directions to Lancaster, directions through about 19 more towns in Pennsylvania and Maryland, and then on to Washington, D.C. Luckily for those arriving, the weather in the capital, where the 28th president of the United States would be sworn in, was almost perfect. It was cloudy in the morning, but it shone brightly when the president was delivering his address and when a parade of 30,000 men, including detachments of the regular army, marched down Pennsylvania Avenue. There was, however, a note of discontent on an issue that existed before 1930, but in that year became more visible. Alice Paul and Lucy Burns would found the organization Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage in 1913. Later, it became the Women's Party, and they would hold a protest parade for women's suffrage before the inauguration. And indeed, Wilson would see protests throughout his presidency. Perhaps not as radical as his defeated rival Theodore Roosevelt might have been, Wilson took many steps in this progressive era where three candidates had run in the presidency and to a degree, all three of them in 1912 had some progressive chops. That wild election, a strong progressive movement, and a Congress of his own party gave him the cover to do a lot of what he wanted. Ten days into his presidency, he held the first official press conference, now an expected and frequent part of the presidency. He gave his State of the Union, not in written form, as had been the case since Jefferson, but spoke in front of Congress. In pushing tariff-lowering reform on a reluctant Congress, Wilson showed no hesitation in appearing on Capitol Hill, utilizing the now non-existent President's Room in the Capitol. And with House and Senate controlled by his own party, he lobbied personally the members of Congress. In addition to tariff reform that is not remembered well in history, 1913 would see another Wilson project, the Federal Reserve, a group of member banks that would control the country's money supply with a unique mixture of public control and private banks, helping to end the constant silver and gold money battles of the 19th century. Doing so with the control of the people, at least through their elected president and his appointments, and doing so by spreading the money supply across banks, not just in New York, but also in Denver, in St. Louis, in San Francisco, regional banks throughout the country, but providing today's American politics with a mysterious Fed that few understand. And this was still a time of vaudeville playing big in 15 theaters across the country. The Queen of All Palace Theater in New York opened in 1913, a 1740-seat theater singing, comedy, dog shows, acrobatic dancing, a Russian songbird. These are all part of the routine of vaudeville shows, and records from vaudeville singers brought the music home. I love you truly, truly, my dear, life with its sorrow, life with its tears. 
For the first time, the Billboard magazine, which at this time covered all of popular culture and not just music, as the magazine of the postering industry, after all, you gotta know what's in fashion to know who to target for billboards, had a list of sheet music bestsellers and top songs in vaudeville theaters published. Among the hits in 1913, Al Jolson's You Made Me Love You, I Didn't Want to Do It, I Didn't Want to Do It, I Didn't Want to Do It, Peg Oh My Heart by Henry Burr, and Chauncey Olcott's When Irish Eyes Are Smiling, as well as Enrico Caruso's Ave Maria. These were among the hits. But it wasn't just music. 1913 was a year of discovery on many fronts that still impacts us today. The process of thermal cracking was invented, which doubled the yield of gasoline that can be extracted from crude oil, and through those economics, helped to ensure that gas and not kerosene or electricity would be the automobile power of the century. It was a year of modern art. As the New York Armory Show introduced Picasso and Matisse to America, U.S. audiences got their exposure to Cubism, including... Former President Roosevelt, who found the Armory Show as a nice way to spend, well, March the 4th, the day that other guy was being inaugurated. And to the delight of those who like the old art, the Mona Lisa, which had been stolen from the Louvre Museum in 1911, was recovered. Reformers reformed in this year. The first minimum wage law in the U.S. took effect, where the first U.S. law regulating the shooting of migratory birds was passed. Kansas approved censorship of those mind-numbing motion pictures. And a 34-year-old, Alfred Puroy Mitchell, beat Tammany Hall to become the boy mayor of New York City on an anti-corruption ticket. And in that same city, a skyscraper rose for the first time. The Woolworth Building in New York City, 792 feet and 57 stories with an observation deck at the top. Well, in Detroit, on the ground floor, Henry Ford instituted the first moving assembly line for his Model T's. It was a year of trivial events, too. The first prize was inserted into a Cracker Jack box. And Gideon Sundback of Sweden earned a patent on the zipper. It had already been used. In entertainment, director Cecil DeMille was filming the Squaw Man in the area of insignificant farm lots, now already becoming the desired central location for films. Sunny Hollywood, California. D.W. Griffiths, The Mothering Heart, was one of the year's films, in addition to Matrimony Speed Limit, Prisoner of Zenda, and others. Unbeknownst to the audience of 1913, a young vaudeville actor named Charlie Chaplin was filming his first film, Indeed, 14 million feet of American film was exported around the world, the U.S. producing 75% of the movies the world was watching from the good old USA. On Broadway, Edward Shelton's romance led the pack. In sports, Ebbets Field opened to throngs of Brooklyn baseball fans. In the World Series that year, the Philadelphia Athletics beat the New York baseball giants four games to one. And in that great sport of rowing, Syracuse men shocked Cornell and the collegiate world. Harvard beat Yale, which didn't shock as much. In boxing, heavyweight champ Jack Johnson beat battling Jim Johnson. As the two heavyweight fighters were black, the contest was held abroad. The fight was a draw, and some said it was a mediocre matchup, and they wanted their money back. Oh, what a year for aviation. The first flights across the Mediterranean, the first pilot to parachute from an aircraft, the first four-engine plane, the use of an aircraft in war by the Greek Air Force in the First Balkan War, which would end in this year in victory for Greece, Bulgaria, and their Balkan allies. It was a time of auto transportation as well. Things were getting a little better for those harried drivers. The Lincoln Highway, really a collection of roads under a uniform name, 
now reached from coast to coast. Auto associations would rate roads, and since highway signage is poor, you could buy picture books that would tell you where to turn. Indeed, the first drive-up gasoline station opened in 1913. Notable deaths and births, Harriet Tubman died and Richard Nixon was born. Vitamin A was invented, and Joyce Kilmer wrote a poem. I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. In politics, Theodore Roosevelt is called a socialist by the New York Times, a socialist who would take away the incentive of toil and enterprise by taxing what he calls unearned incomes. In fact, the New York Times said he's a super socialist. The Beaux-Arts Grand Central Station building in New York City was erected in 1913, this day serving millions of commuters. The building was placed right in the middle of Park Avenue in New York City with a novel device allowing trains to go underground and street traffic to turn around it. What man could build, nature could tear down, and the town of Dayton, Ohio was almost destroyed when three rivers, Skelter, the Miami, and the Muskegon, would flood. The water crested 20 feet deep in the downtown area of Dayton. Buildings were moved off their foundations, and debris in the moving water damaged other structures. A gas explosion started, fire that destroyed a city block. Several of their fires throughout the city, the fire department was unable to reach them. 20,000 homes were destroyed, more than 360 people died, as did 1,400 horses. There was no FEMA. It was up to the local area and the state to help. Governor Cox's Dayton Citizens Relief Commission conducted a 10-day fundraiser, which collected over $2 million to fund flood control measures. And during this time, John H. Patterson, a local businessman who ran National Cash Register, NCR, led these recovery efforts. NCR employees built 300 boats. Patterson organized rescue teams to save thousands of people stranded on roofs. He turned the NCR factory into an emergency shelter providing food and lodging. So you've heard many of these events of 1913 and some you probably say, wow, sounds so similar to today or that's significant, that's interesting. But probably the most important event of 1913 at least in terms of impact on our lives today and our politics, was on February 3rd, when the state of Delaware ratified the 16th Amendment to the United States Constitution, giving the amendment the three-fourths of the state legislature that needed. The amendment exempted income tax from the constitutional requirements regarding direct taxes. The Constitution said that anytime you collect a direct tax, a tax on people, it has to be distributed back to the people accordingly. The Supreme Court had ruled an income tax unconstitutional in 1895. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. The passage of the 16th was the end result of a multi-dimensional political game of wits. Democrats had proposed an income tax through congressional legislation. Then-conservative Nelson Aldridge of Rhode Island proposed that, in an effort to head off the legislation, it be done through a constitutional amendment, hoping that the states would never ratify an income tax. But at the same time, tariff legislation was stuck on the issue of, if you lower tariffs, taxes on imports, how do you fund the government? Tariffs hit hard at the household level, but income taxes would be limited to the wealthy. President William Taft, a Republican, supported an income tax in a 1909 statement. Congress acted, but it took a few years to get the states. By the time of the 1912 election, though, all three candidates, Roosevelt, Taft, and Wilson, supported the income tax. Interestingly enough about the 16th Amendment, the first states to rush to support it were states that probably wouldn't be in such a rush today, I would imagine, given their politics. The first state to ratify was Alabama, the second, Kentucky, and the third, South Carolina. Bastion of liberal thought it is. The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on income from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. Secretary of State Philander Knox announced that the amendment had been ratified. Congress immediately acted, put an income tax into effect, and created the IRS to collect funds. The agency promptly invented a form known as 1040. But most people then didn't see it. According to the law of 1913, single persons earning $3,000 or more were subject to a 1% federal tax. Those under that didn't have to pay. Now, just $3,000. Well, in 1913, that's like $70,000 today. That's using a strict CPI calculation. It's really even more. I say this so many times in the program, but if you're considering the time value of money, you really have to use multiple calculations. Each one gives you a slight different flavor. It's probably even more than 70000 today as to who would pay income tax because there weren't as many people making 70000 then as there are people making 70000 now. So a prestige value calculation would be more like 134000 You didn't pay tax unless you were up there. While not a tax on the obscenely wealthy, it did skip over most of the population. Further, the measure provided a progressive tax structure, meaning that higher income earners were required to pay a surcharge at higher tax rates. 1% for those making 20000 or more, and it topped out at 6% on incomes in excess of half a million. Probably something like $7 million in those days. Given such a limited taxpayer base and low rates, it's not surprising. The income tax had only a minor role in the federal revenue system. Four years later, 1917, with the federal government preparing for war and to help allies, that 7% rate, once saved for millionaires, was now 10000 Still a lot of money in 1917, maybe 175000 But you're with the CPI calculation. World War I accelerated the increase in rates and the lowering of exemptions. 
and the return to normalcy ushered in by the Republicans in 1920, Harding and Coolidge, included a small cut, but didn't change the basic assumptions that income tax was going to pay for most of the federal government and that it was going to be a middle-class tax by and large. The exemption under Harding and Coolidge was $1,000. So that would be like ten or 20000 a year today, depending on the calculation you use, and the tax was 2 to 4%. So people making over 200000 in those days were going to pay 20%. They're going to get to the type of rates we pay today. And it did not change the direction. Income tax, primary means of financing the government. The addition of Social Security and Medicare and employment, the Federal Insurance Contribution Act, FICA, that you see on your paychecks, further consolidated in the 1930s the role of income tax in funding what the government does. That this progressive measure of 1913 failed as a soak-the-rich instrument is a narrative oft-told now. But a look at its 1913's origins provide another dimension, without disputing that story completely. Another tax existed before 1913, which had financed the government. $500 million nearly was extracted to pay for it. It was the tariff. And in the post-Civil War era, tariffs in America were high to protect manufacturers and to fund the government, especially the increased role of government as the pension provider. The tariff was paid to the custom house, but at quite high levels, some products as high as 50% of value. These were taxes designed to try and keep foreign products out of the market. It didn't completely, but did make them more expensive. This was a tax on people exporting things into our country. Who could that hurt? There's little doubt that this was passed on to consumers. Individuals, farmers, workers paid for it every time they bought glassware, bought tin plates, a wool coat, a carpet, shoes. They also paid for it in the form of tariffs on goods used to make those products, like iron, steel, coal, and chemicals. The tariff is not so innocuous as it might seem today, especially at those high rates. Examining today's woes over the income tax might shine a bit of light on the function that it had, experiment in populism, but in replacing another woe. Grover Cleveland said about the, the old tariff, The exactions on behalf of the people were done in a stealthy manner, unobserved, added to their purchases. They were unable to see the extent of these exactions. But it is indefensible extortion. It is a burden on those of moderate means, the poor, the sick, employed or the unemployed. President Taft, too, opposed such large tariffs. And in addition to, might ease the burden on the average dinner table, had another concern. He was concerned about the number of mergers that were taking place, the effects of combinations and trust on the United States' competitive position. The trust movement, he felt, was benefited by the money they could make in protected industry. They were benefiting from the tariffs. Lower tariff would help to reduce the trusts. Cleveland saw the same goal. Thus, a less noticeable but just as important event occurred in 1913, the resolution of the large part of the tariff battle that had existed throughout the decades with the passage of the Underwood-Simmons bill, which dramatically lowered taxes on imports. It was voted on in the Senate on September 9, 1913, passed by a vote of 44 to 37. It wasn't easy. Wilson had to fight. Initially, Senator Underwood of Alabama, who had proposed the legislation, was willing to cave in a couple issues. The president criticized him for surrendering to the lobbyists who wanted to raise duties in the bill on farm products, sugar, leather boots, shoes, and raw wool. Wilson ordered for those items to be made free. Otherwise, he threatened to veto. 
This angered some Democratic congressmen in Massachusetts who wanted to continue the protection of the shoe industry, and a senator from North Carolina who favored the protection of cotton textiles. Senator Underwood himself wanted some moderate protection for sugar and wool. No, Wilson said, and decided to use a public message to expose the lobbyists who were coming to Congress to lobby, much to the chagrin of industry. A rare comment from a president on congressional legislation forced Congress to hold hearings to find out if Wilson was right. They found out he was not only right, but during part of the hearings, it was discovered that the beet sugar manufacturers had spent $5 million to enlist politicians, businessmen, and bankers to fight against free sugar. The public was outraged and supported the tariff reform legislation. Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin, not a fan of Wilson beforehand, wrote that the country is indebted to President Wilson for exploding the bomb that blew the lid off the congressional lobby. Thus, in 1913, when the income tax passed, that's the moment that we'll remember now, and there should be plenty of articles written about it, but the moment that people in 1913 remembered was the tariff lowering, and indeed, that first income tax was simply included as part of the revenue bill, aimed at raising about $100 million dollars maybe about 13% of the budget, which would help to offset the tariff lowering. A little more out of some of the wealthy pockets, but boy, was sugar made cheap. The passage of one amendment would lead to four more in the 19-teens, one in the same year of 1913, and this probably won't be surprising. The two amendments, the 16th and the 17th, were connected. See, once the federal government was now funded more directly by the people, advocates began pushing for those people who are now paying a part of the taxes to be directly electing senators. There were other reasons. At the time, U.S. senators were chosen by their respective state legislatures. There was corruption. Images of Senator Clark in Montana, no longer in the Senate at this time, but everyone remembered his buying up of the Montana legislature. As he said, I never bought a man who wasn't for sale. The Senate was seen as a millionaire's club. Perhaps one-third were extremely wealthy. But that wasn't the only problem. State legislators electing senators was seen by progressive reformers to be dens of corruption and horse trading. Some state senators at the time were complaining that they had state issues to vote on and everything was depending on their election of a federal senator. Thus, the 17th Amendment requiring direct election of senators quickly ratified. The issue has had some effects. It reduced state influence over federal politics rested that directly with the people. As far as the Millionaires Club, 67% of senators, according to a Center for Responsive Politics report, were in 2010 millionaires. Elections after all costs. Not all parties want to fundraise for these candidates. It helps to have a little personal wealth. Probably some other impact. States have lost a bit of a power. and We maybe don't pay as much attention to state legislatures. So there you have it. A year of experimentation a year before the world would be brought into a terrible war that almost no one could envisage. A year with a fairly powerful president elected in a very different kind of election who felt he had a bit of a free hand. So you receive a package. You vote for your senator. You file your tax return. And you listen on the radio about what the Fed is doing. You listen on a radio built in China with a minimal tariff. And all of what you're doing originated 100 years ago. 
I hope you enjoyed this walk through time. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics, twitter.com slash myhist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. And if you do like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening.